2: $25 each.
1: Visit LiveNation.com slash to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash to buy now. Dealing with pests
3: can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does
2: Terminix.
1: With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast.
2: If your home or business has pests, don't stress
3: it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today.
2: That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. It's no secret that the idea of the serial killer holds, um, Holds a prominent place in American culture. And it being American culture, it's also sadly no surprise that serial killer memorabilia has become a shadow industry all its own. Not just things like, uh, th- not just things associated with homicides or associated with the killer themselves, but often art and letters created by these murderers. That's what our classic episode's about tonight.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really – it's sad on a couple of levels because oftentimes, uh, you know, folks like this who have been incarcerated, um, there are laws against them profiting off of these kinds of, you know, uh, sale of memorabilia. So there's a certain black market around it, but also just the people who obsess over this stuff. Uh, and you can also find some of these pieces in like the Museum of Death, for example, which I believe we talk about in the episode. So it, it is a very interesting world if niche and, and kind of
1: – drenched in melancholy so let's check out this episode the murky world of serial killer memorabilia from may 2018
2: from ufos to psychic powers and government conspiracies history is riddled with unexplained events you can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know
1: Hello, welcome back to the show.
2: My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. You are here. You are you. And that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, featuring, of course, our super producer, Paul, mission Control Deccant, who, I have have it on good authority, has never himself purchased something uh, involved with the murder. Oh, well, that's nice.
1: That is certainly a claim to fame that Paul can attest to. He's got a whole heck of a lot of cool posters, though, for
2: movies. Right, right. And then murders may occur in those works of fiction. Mm, They definitely do. But Mission Control is not the kind of cat to go out and read about maybe a series of stabbings and say, I need to buy that knife. I want a piece of that action. Mm -hmm. I want a shoe from a victim or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I was...
1: I couldn't believe that that existed before we did this episode, Ben. It's a weird
2: thing, of course. (laughs) Paul, I I promise we will stop using you as an example. As far as we know, uh, none of us, Paul included, have purchased this sort of memorabilia previously – on Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, we had explored numerous stories of serial killers, specific cases such as our unfortunately ongoing Uncaught Serial Killer series and larger phenomena such as the Highway of Tears. Or even the East Area Rapist slash Original Night Stalker. Right, right. Uh D'Angelo had just been caught and we had mentioned this, I think, just briefly in a, in an earlier episode. We might have to do an entire follow up on that because it leads to some wide reaching implications for genetic testing and yeah. DNA basis.
1: Didn't we do a whole episode on the ori- We did a whole original we Night did. Sucker
2: episode. Wow. We did, yeah. And uh, we wondered whether he would be caught. We did speculate on his age. Mm-hmm. And overall, we. We weren't wrong. Remember we said he might be listening? He could have been listening. That's true. He could have. I don't know if he's a fan of podcasts. Uh, allegedly, he's a recluse. Okay. Uh, but they found him through some relatives' DNA. Well, we'll we'll dig into that, so stay tuned. One thing's for sure, though. There are probably going to be people who attempt to, um, to associate themselves with this in one way or another. You know, it's uh, – it's a very cold comfort for the surviving victims, and it's a um it's a closure point for people who spent years, decades of unpaid time investigating this. Today, we're touching on serial killers, but in a little bit of a different way. We're not looking at so many specific cases, and we're not tracing murders themselves. Instead, we're exploring an industry that sprang up around these grisly tragedies, a monetization of monsters made. Flesh and here are the facts we 've already explored how law enforcement and criminologists define serial killers along with the problems inherent in that definition and the difference between the way these murders are depicted in fiction and the way they actually behave, but we haven't explored the other side of the dark mirror we haven't looked at the public fascination with these crimes and the public fascination with the people who commit them yeah, and this stuff probably might. Let's say might not
1: apply to you, but uh, it's overwhelmingly likely that somebody you are an acquaintance with harbors this weird curiosity. I say weird. For me and for – I guess for the social mores of the world, it is a bit strange. Hmm. This fascination with serial killers, murderers, people who go out and take lives – People like this read exhaustive biographies. They read accounts of the the actual killer's activities, what occurs before the MO of the killer. Mm -hmm. Um, They can likely compare differences in motivation between killers and execution and apprehension uh, for multiple killers.
2: Uh, So we're talking about Someone who's able to say, well, the difference between John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer is the following.
1: Yeah. And we'll we'll sit down with you at a bar and tell you the differences for an hour. I have been guilty
2: of that. (laughs) Yeah. I think – and I think everybody has that fascination to some degree, right? Mm,
1: Yeah. Because it is so different from normal everyday
2: activities. Yeah, and there's a book we found uh, from 2014 called Why We Love Serial Killers in which criminologist Dr. Scott Bond explores the nature of this and he notes the same things we've seen in, in previous arguments about this fascination. He says there's a difference between perceptions of killers and reality. Uh, and He does a lot of myth-busting in this book. If you are at all interested in this topic, we highly recommend it. One of the myths he busts is that The majority of serial killers are believed to be white males. However, according to the FBI, the race by race, the racial breakdown of serial killers is about the same proportion as that of the U.S. population at large. And based on the Radford University serial killer database, which holy smokes is a real thing, uh, only 46 percent of serial killers since 1910 have been white men and that's using data for a little less than 4,000. Killers. Or maybe uh, right at four thousand. Now that they've added the Night Stalker. Well,
3: here's the thing, you know, none of us, including uh, Paul, Michelin Man, Mission Control, Deckhand, own any of this. Um, these keepsakes of any kind of serial killer, and yet I'm a f- I'm fond of serial killer movies. I'm not as into true crime as it would seem. Literally, everyone else on the planet is, but it is obviously a huge booming business. Where do you think that fascination comes from? That makes you know the average Jane and John Doe off the street want to kind of dig into some of this stuff, whether it's in reading books about it, or, uh, listening to true crime podcasts, watching films, or you know exploring some of this uh, this
2: darkness. Yeah, and we have to we'll stick with this perception of of uh, serial killers being overwhelmingly white and male to to hit on this because when we bring up fiction in the zeitgeist, what we see is that even if the facts bear out that not all these killers are white males, the ones who get remembered in pop culture do tend to be white male killers. Uh, the, and Bond has a couple of theories about this. He says the the gender difference may come down to a matter of method. Female killers, in his argument, tend to be less uh, – g- use less gory methods like poison and sh- uh, rather than shooting. But uh, one of the most famous or infamous uh, female serial killers in the U.S., Eileen Wornos, was uh, murdering people with a gun. Bond thinks that's the reason why she reached fame. But only 9 percent, around 9 percent of serial killers since 1910 have been women. Forty uh, percent have been African-American and few have achieved uh, celebrity status. There's the disturbing thing there. Is it choice of victims? Bond believes most serial killers tend to kill within their own race, and that white victims, especially white female victims, usually get wider media attention. So there's a there's a loop here uh, between victims and killers and the media, and so this racial bias, as disturbing as it is, is real. And according to Bond. He says, although it may not seem fair, affluent white neighborhoods are given priority over poor, black, or Latino neighborhoods by state officials in the assignment of valuable policing resources. This negatively impacts the ability of law enforcement personnel to pursue serial murder cases in poor racial minority communities. So society is valuing these victims less, and it's making, as a result, uh, it's making the crimes, as horrific as this sounds, uh presented or perceived as somehow less important and this means that the infamy of the killer also becomes uh, uh,
1: lower yeah because they're they're not spending the resources to catch the people that do them and when you're not spending the resources to catch them you're not getting the media attention you're not I mean there's all he bond makes all these, Unfortunate points about mm-hmm. the reality of our situation, of racial bifurcation.
2: And so there, to that point, if we, if we use this uh, information and we, we ask ourselves the same question Noel was asking, you're asking about um, fascination with serial killers, we have to ask ourselves, does this mean we are more fascinated with a stereotype mm. rather than an actual phenomenon? But – we can't go too far, or too fast down that path because it turns out there's solid evidence for the American obsession with serial killers, and it's not particularly promising news. Uh, there have been more than 2,600 serial killers in the U.S. since 1900. England, who has the next highest total, has had only 142. 2,600 to 142. Uh, we also, in the states, have higher rates of violent crime. And that might be why some killers are more famous than others because, again, throughout the world, even though serial killers exist in other countries, throughout the world, when people picture a serial killer, they usually picture either Jack the Ripper or someone from the States. Yeah.
1: This is highly bothersome, this American obsession with it. And I wonder how much – you know, There's there are all things that we can, uh, we can go down and there's there's more that we're getting in here about fiction, about Americans – Obsession with fictionalizing these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It does feel like the advent of the film industry in the United States probably is linked with with this. But
3: yeah, that's what I was getting at. It's like we're not obsessed with it and that we empathize with killers or that we see ourselves in serial killers. I think there's some part of us that maybe is fascinated by it because it makes us feel superior in some way. It's like we do not have this compulsion or, you know. I don't, I'm wondering, I'm asking you guys, like, where, where you think it comes from because I've always kind of been stuck on that because it is so grisly and unpleasant, and yet it is something that seems to catch people's imaginations you know the world over
2: yeah yeah and it's true that many of the stories the way they're presented whether by uh, just the facts criminologist or whether by the the film industry they all have the marks of gripping fiction high stakes danger fire knives mysteries and clear heroes and villains often mm-hmm. right and Research shows, I think this is pretty fascinating, research shows that there are a couple of groups of people who enjoy these graphic frightening stories and they can have a number of very different motivations. The study from 1995 uh, about adolescents said that some were gore watchers, meaning they professed. In in like a confidential environment, that they were watching uh, horrific movies because they enjoyed the blood and guts. They tended to have low levels of empathy, strong need for adventure seeking, and then there were thrill watchers who got the adrenaline rush of being scared, that roller coaster feeling, right? And they have high levels of adventure seeking, but they also have you know high levels of empathy and. The gore watchers identified with the killers rather than the victims. The thrill watchers identified with neither – I guess you'd say they identify with the plot. Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting. So it's not just um, all in our minds, our smartphones, our television. There's a physiological thing that happens here just like we talked about dopamine and social media. You get a increased heart rate, increased breathing rate, increased blood glucose levels – And you also get, again, a a dose of dopamine when you're watching these things. It's the neurotransmitter famously associated with pleasure, mainly food and sex, but also occurs during times of fear. And it's good for our survival. I mean, we don't have to go too granular here, but there is physiological evidence. And so in a very real way, depictions of serial killers can function for adults the way that monster movies function for kids.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, my son, Ryder, is a bit too young to do this kind of thing. Although we we did recently watch Toy Story in which there's that the little kid next door that tortures toys and oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's scarier than I'd remembered. And at, you know, about two and a half, it's like, okay, maybe we shouldn't watch something like this anymore. But, of course, you know, he can handle something that has a a monster monster just fine, and he thinks it's fun. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, nothing too graphic, but something like Moana that has a big volcano monster in it. Oh, He yeah, just yeah. thinks it's because it's, I don't know, it's, it's not as real as a little kid that's how, actually scary.
2: How do you handle Halloween? I don't know about you guys, but for me as a kid, Halloween was my favorite holiday. And it has some scary themes in there that maybe don't really hit you when you're... Uh, when you 're a child
1: well yeah at at his age, you just kind of have to keep him away from it a lot of it, mm. but there's you know dressed up like a dragon come on that 's fun uh what because you, your your kid's a bit a little bit older yeah she she dressed up as a creepy um
3: dead doll last year with like corpse makeup on and stuff wow yeah, she's nine, but she also dressed up as Satan when she was only <laughs> uh four wow so she's got a she 's got a history of, of creepy creepy Halloween costumes. She's all about the spooky stuff, mm-hmm. except when she's not, except when it's too much. She likes to control it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the thing. Sometimes you don't know, like uh, th- that scene in Toy Story to one kid, could would be totally fine. Another kid, it could traumatize them for life, you know? I don't yeah. Know.
1: Well, it, just to jump back into the, the dopamine dosing that people get from watching this kind of fiction and experiencing it through a mm-hmm. uh, crime drama on television or um, some of the murder shows that exist throughout. It is it's really interesting to me. That, that you can sit on your couch or you can sit in a movie theater and get those same feelings that you would if you were out having a fantastical meal somewhere or let's say being amorous with your your loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked in our Hidden Brain episodes about this is one of the, one of the reasons that horror movies are so good for that kind of date situation. Sure, Because it's causing these things to occur in your brain. But, When you get into the mind of some of the adolescents who are the gore watchers, that frightens me. Hmm. It feels like there needs to be some kind of process of uh, cataloging the gore watchers. Oh, that sounds awful when I say it out loud. But Hmm. I feel like they should should at least be on the radar. (laughs) I don't know.
2: (laughs) You know, it's now more than ever it's possible to do something like that. But the question is, should we ethically as a society? Agreed. But then are we saving lives? Uh, this, anyway, we, where does this all leave us? This physiological stuff, it's real. The stereotypes are real. The, um, the facts are, remain disturbing. We'll explore this after a word from our sponsors. And what we see now is that the mythical killers, those who don't fit into the existing sort of narrative, are becoming separated from the facts of their cases. So, with each new film, novel, or other fictional iteration about someone like uh, Ed Gein, right—the the loose basis for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film franchise. Uh, any part of the story that doesn't fit into the mold of uh, deranged, middle-aged white guy, possibly with a dark secret, any, any stuff that doesn't fit there is just shed. It's just on the cutting room floor and the stereotype becomes more streamlined. And now there's this increasing trend. I'm really interested in, in hearing opinions on this. There's this increasing trend of serial killers as protagonists. I watched Dexter. I thought it was cool for the first few seasons. Oh boy, and then it jumped the shark pretty, pretty <laughs> yeah. seriously. Yeah. Well, there's another
1: one. Uh, did you guys watch Luther at all? I like Luther a lot. The Alice Morgan character mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the first episode. Mm-hmm. I won't spoil it too much because it's relatively new, but it it's a straight up serial killer that becomes the love
3: interest. Like, what? Yeah, but it's sort of like one of those, like, um, tortured loves, too, or it's this forbidden love kind of situation.
1: Yeah, but it's And, still... and she's
3: a threat to him as well. Yeah. Uh, but... Pretty pretty constantly. No, I see what you're saying. And she is designed—that character is designed to make you—to to kind of appeal to you. To, to make you like uh, see from her side, mm-hmm. you know, because even nah, we, we'd be getting too much into spoiler territories. But some of the crimes that she commits, she has this really intense rationalization for committing that you almost can kind of buy
2: into in a way. It's weird. Well, that's what all of these do. I you know? am so excited to watch this show now. It's I've, very good. Um, so behind behind the curtain, uh, both Matt and i will have much, much better taste than me in general. So, oh, stop! So, if you guys have some advice on a show, I am in. Also, Idris Elba yeah. is a hunk, <laughs> dude. I mean, come on, just watch it for him. <laughs> is he a real smoke show? I oh, heard that boy. on last week tonight. That's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah, we didn't make that one up, folks. That's that's all John Oliver <laughs> or his writers. So yeah, so we identify with these people, right? One of, in the one of the most famous examples, of course, is Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. by the third novel. He's pretty much. A tortured anti hero
1: that eats people.
2: Well,
3: that's kind of what I was getting at too earlier, is trying to kind of like come to put my finger on or put our collective thumbs on what this is. Like, I feel like that um, identifying feature is almost an evolution because, like, you know, earlier serial killer um, films typically the killer is. You don't even know who it is. It's just this unseen, murderous force of chaos and destruction. It's a monster. It's a monster, exactly. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, because we need more, we, we have to twist it around to make it where, well, I we kind of see where this person's coming from. This, this I kind of like
1: Dr. Lecter. He's interesting. But isn't that closer to reality, probably, <laughs> an actual human three-dimensional character that is – doing awful things. It's true, but separated from the fiction part of it,
3: I'm wondering why the fascination with true crime and grisly accounts of crime scenes and um, serial killer stories that are, you know, um, the subject of lots of nonfiction and obviously the podcast industry is kind of
2: lousy with this stuff right now. You're welcome. Uh, (laughs) Thank thank you. Uh, Matt is one of the masterminds behind uh, the enormously fascinating Atlanta monster podcast. Yep. Well, one aspect of it is, uh, is we all like, we all like our tragedies at an arm's length mm. and things like penny dreadfuls were super popular. This, um, focus on gore is, is somehow linked to our understanding of our own survival And I I love that you mentioned the evolution from faceless monster to three-dimensional character because in older days, these things were straight-up cautionary tales. Don't go into the woods. The wolf will eat you. Look at this uh, girl of ill repute out late in the mean streets of London. There's a lot of victim Mm -hmm. blaming in this stuff and it still happens in horror movies today. And unfortunately, it happens sometimes with victims of real-life killers. But I, I think part of it – Noel, you raised a good point when you said um, – you mentioned superiority. I am not that monster, right? I am not that victim. If I'm in a horror movie and I hear a door creak by the, the front of the haunted cabin, I get back in my uh, – Toyota Tercel, hope it starts, and drive away. You certainly don't run up the stairs. <laughs> you or, know that Tercel's not going to run. Or That's go. True. Or go, who's there? <laughs> You're going to fumble the keys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And then the car will will choke. Yep. <laughs> oh, boy. You've got four flat tires, buddy. So maybe it's our way of safely experiencing and exploring these things. And then on the dark side— at at some point, whenever we as individuals see or hear about a crime or a, a social transgression, whether it's shoplifting, whether it's uh, cheating on one's spouse, or whether it's like uh, swindling someone out of a, a, a deal, like we hear about corporate scandals or something, mm-hmm. we hear about Mark Zuckerberg and whatnot, on some level we all kind of do a gut check and run it past ourselves and think, would I do that you know in 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 some cases, there's a threshold. It might be well, I'm not going to steal ten dollars from petty cash at a company, but if I steal a hundred and fifty million and I get an island, then you know, yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> I'll just won't have a Facebook profile. first thing you have to do is work for a company that has that kind of money that's true that's true uh but the you see what I'm saying though? It's yes, like we – we, we, and we ask ourselves, am I someone who would kill? What would it take for me to kill, you know? Like would I kill to avenge uh, loss of a relative or a loved one? Would I kill to protect one? That's the answer most people have, right? Yeah, would I kill just for the thrill of it? Right. Would I kill if I felt there was a divine message compelling me to? Like Abraham in the Bible? Yeah, would but-
1: if God asks you to sacrifice your son,
2: I'm just going to go ahead and say, please don't.
1: Please don't. God will be okay with it.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a very strange story. But regardless, this fascination, you may ask yourselves, why are we talking so much about this? Because we're walking toward something stranger this lionization and in some cases deification of serial murders regardless of what the motivation is leads to strange and disturbing situations you know there are copycat killers people who use a ongoing killer's activities uh as a um as a cover in some cases to get away with murder and pin it on the other person
1: or even an homage to that killer
2: true yeah and then they're obsessive fans of incarcerated murderers and serial killers. They supply prisoners with money. They send books and other stuff to them. And in some cases, they marry them while yep. they're in prison. Yep. Uh, Charles Manson is a great example of that. Several times. I believe you're correct, man. Mm-hmm. I believe it's he's been married several times. Yep. Man. But that's not all. Here's where it gets crazy.
1: Now we're entering the world of serial killer memorabilia, what this episode is all about. It's also called murderabilia and it's – that, of course, word has just been the portmanteau. Portmanteau. Yes. Of the – of murder and memorabilia, which is – it's fun to say. So what what is this? These are relics, my friend. Yeah, they're relics. They can be any number of
3: things, though, right? We sort of talked about it at the top of the show, but they can be everything from an artifact generated by an incarcerated serial killer or something they did when they were out in the world. I bet that ups the value a lot if they did it while they were actually on their spree at large, right? Um, A lot of these killers get into crafting, you know, when they're in prison. Like John Wayne Gacy became an avid painter um, while he was on death row. And his paintings to this day are, I think, some of the most valuable items in circulation in this pretty small close-knit community. But it could also be um, artifacts associated with a murder. Like, for example, dirt from John Wayne Gacy's crawl space. Um, you can find a pair of his clown shoes that he wore. I'm um, Not to make this all about Gacy, but uh, he is one of the, the biggest kind of stars of this, uh, this scene. There was a, um, an action figure that Jeffrey Dahmer made that had oh, wow. human bits baked into it. Are you serious? hmm Yeah. All kinds of crazy stuff, man. So basically anything you can think of that would be associated with any crime, the more grisly and the more kind of outlandish, the better. That's, this, that's what we're talking about. And then there's this whole scene— of people trading this stuff. And there's a lot of interesting legal ins and outs that go into this whole world. Right, Ben?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, all three of us have, have seen this stuff firsthand, but we have seen it in museums. Yeah. Right, Noel, you went to – was it the Murder Museum in California? It's the Museum of Death. Museum in, of in, Death. In
3: Los Angeles. And and where did you guys go? In, in D.C., I believe.
1: It was the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. Cool.
2: And I think we both saw uh, some stuff from John Wayne Gacy in those museums. Yes, that's
1: right. Yeah, ours was like a clown suit mm-hmm. and a couple other things of his – But it wasn't just serial killers in the places where we went. It was also the one about crime in particular was, Mm -hmm. you know, the car uh, from somebody who went on a crime spree that wasn't exactly a serial killer but had murdered a bunch of people in a crime spree. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of other things like
2: that. Yeah, But it's still memorabilia. Right, and weapons from killers from the Wild West. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah, the one in Hollywood is a little more on the
3: prurient side, I would say. Um, It's filled with things like Crime scene photos of dismembered bodies, um, a lot of photos taken by killers themselves. There's one where a couple went on a spree and, like, dismembered several victims. I think it was the woman's ex-husband, and they, like, sever. The, the penis and things like that oh, and there wow. are photographs of all this. So this place in particular is not for the the faint of heart. There's a whole room <laughs> devoted to old like embalming techniques and there's a video mm. that plays on a loop of like an old embalming video tutorial uh, that starts off innocently enough and just gets – Kind of drop dead, uh, horrendously graphic after a while. Um, But yeah, but they had – there's a whole room devoted to the Heaven's Gate cult, the Marshall Applewhite thing where there is kind of a – almost a diorama set up where there is a body in the bed covered with a purple blanket and uh, Applewhite's – kind of sermons are playing on a loop on a TV, a little small VHS TV, and it's a bunk bed. kind of. It's like a hole meant to recreate the uh, that mass suicide that happened with the Heaven's Gate cult. So Gosh. really cool, really small. Um, I really recommend checking it out, but it's not for the faint of heart, but really, really interesting stuff. And that the thing that was most interesting that I saw there was a notebook that had letters between a killer and an art dealer who had been – purchasing this killer's work, and the killer wrote letters back to this art dealer threatening to sue because they had not received payment. And there's a real specific reason
2: for why that might have been, isn't there, Ben? Yes, there is a very specific reason. Uh, You see, we've talked about how almost anything could qualify as this stuff. We've talked about how we have seen this stuff in person in a museum, but – when we get into the world of private collectors, when we get into this idea of this trade, we immediately enter a ongoing and intense debate about legality. Should it be legal to traffic these items on a private individual scale or should it be more of an Indiana Jones approach? Uh, can any of us do a good Harrison Ford? No. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, I can't. I mean,
1: Matt
3: may be good.
2: Yeah, Matt, Matt, you're a leader. Of this. He's, he's doing a hard shake.
1: I I can't do a Harrison Ford. I don't I don't know. What it, well, get, can you do it? Get, just? get off my plane,
3: <laughs> you <laughs> terrorist scum! That's great. You killed my. I didn't kill my wife. <laughs> <laughs>
2: How's that? The fugitive, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's Those awesome. are great. Will you say? Will you say the line? Um,
3: these belong in a museum.
2: <laughs> There we go. Indiana Jones, ladies and gentlemen. Oh God. Uh so yeah, should they should they be stuck in a museum? And museums can use this stuff under the uh, auspice of an educational experience, right? We are giving you knowledge about times past and their effect on the present. For sure. And I think the key here, too, is that third-party
3: curatorial kind of aspect, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing I was getting at um, is that the reason that this – person had not been paid or they would have no legal recourse to sue the art dealer that was not paying them is because it's illegal for perpetrators of crimes like this to benefit financially from Mm -hmm. the legacy
1: of their horrific acts. Mm -hmm. Known as the son of Sam laws. mm -hmm. right? Well, Mm -hmm. it certainly didn't work out for the National Crime Museum in Washington, D.C. that we visited because since 2015, it has been permanently closed.
2: Yeah, we really, we really wrecked the place.
3: Yep. But that's the thing, though. It's like, how do you get this stuff? And you know, we'll, we'll get into more of this in a little bit. But mm-hmm. some of it comes from uh, direct involvement and direct communication with the criminals. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start getting into this gray territory where it's like, how do I entice them to make work for me? You know, mm-hmm. make stuff just for me so that I can sell it. I mean, someone is literally, whether it's a dealer or the proprietor of a museum or what have you, benefiting financially from the suffering
2: of of hundreds, thousands potentially. Right. And the Son of Sam laws are not, not federal yet. They're state by state and they're, they're a little bit different. We can explore some of this, but the, the primary question is should someone who has committed multiple murders or any murder, should they be able to profit themselves, right? Like this art dealer, uh, should they sell a painting for $500 and then give 400 to someone who was a cannibal or is a cannibal and just happens to be locked up now? A dormant cannibal. A dormant ca- – cannibal in waiting uh, – It's weird because, like with Gacy, Gacy's dead, right? Mm -hmm. So people who are in this industry can sell this dead man's stuff to each other. And that is not illegal right now. Uh, But it's frowned upon. In 2001, eBay stopped all of these traffic, uh, all of these sorts of transactions. As you guys remember, eBay a while back, oh, my gosh, 2001 so long ago now. You could buy all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. I bought a haunted accordion, an allegedly haunted accordion. I had no idea that accordion was haunted. <laughs> it what? certainly doesn't sound normal. Really? <laughs> it's got sort of a ghostly quality to it? It was advertised as a haunted accordion. And I'm not going to say where I was at in life, but it was pretty late in night. Wow. It was the wee hours of the morning. And well, I said, that's what I need. What's the haunted markup for an accordion? It's got to be pretty steep. Uh <laughs> It was not my best financial decision, <laughs> but um, but that aside, you know that just says you can that just shows you can buy anything on eBay. But effective May seventeenth, two thousand one, items associated with quote notorious individuals who have committed murderous crimes within the last one hundred years were banned. And now the serious traders started their own websites, like Super N-A-U-G-H-T dot com SerialKillersInc com and as we record this several people including uh, U.S. Senator John Cornyn are fighting to obliterate this trade. There's an advocate named Andy Cahan who is participating with the with legislators to try to bring this trade to a legal end but while they're fighting it, it means that it's still legal in most cases. I think it was Can that kind of
3: got eBay to pull the plug on this stuff, mm-hmm. or it was his a lot of his activism. Mm-hmm. I think that um, uh, made them force them to make that change.
2: And the the first question, the first question that we run into here is: Should it be illegal? Should we stop people from doing this? And if so, why? We'll get to that right after a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Well, I think the obvious answer is yes, it should be illegal. Or at least people think that, yes, it should be illegal. It feels in your gut maybe. It does, it, it
3: does feel wrong. And Even the eBay rules sort of point to this um, because they, they do still allow the sale of artifacts, I think, that are older than a certain um, date. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but something that would be much more likely to be considered a historical artifact, Um, you know, like – Fossils and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That is legal to distribute on eBay, but this stuff is not. And I think the real reason for that is that the people affected by this stuff directly are still living. It is inherently insensitive and people are literally profiting off of the suffering and torture and um, ruination of people's lives.
1: Yeah, it it does, Mm -hmm. however, feel like it could be and probably is a free speech
2: kind of uh, issue that you're dealing with here. That's one of the arguments that the collectors and many um, many people in support of this trade, or at least maybe supports, weird word, in opposition of banning it, mm-hmm. or against banning it. Uh, they say that if we refuse to provide incentives for criminals to tell their stories, then accounts of some crimes may never be fully told. And some of those crimes... Like uh, the JFK assassination was the one they bring up may be of vital public interest. Personally, it's just one person's opinion. I I think that's a little bit disingenuous.
1: Yeah, well, there's profit to be made for right. a lot of that.
2: <laughs> and then and then to to the point to the art collector correspondence that uh, that we mentioned earlier. The trade becomes really murky when we explore how these folks get their items. Direct mm-hmm. contact, writing to someone, a corrupt prison guard perhaps. Yeah. Right. It does feel like perhaps
1: there could be a route somewhere in here, and this is off book, but it feels like there could be a route somewhere that's working with people who hold evidence, so mm-hmm. law enforcement that holds evidence, and putting it in a museum setting that is not for profit. It feels like there's some route there yeah. if we want to maintain it um, just for a historical record of things not to do as a society. Right. I could see that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that that makes sense. I, I feel like that's the approach that the museums we have visited have taken.
1: Or at least think they're ta- – or like would, would say that that's the route they're taking, right?
2: Right. Yeah. But – when it comes to the idea of a killer directly profiting off this, it, it isn't legal. Yeah, the Son of Sam laws, we mentioned before, named after Sam Berkowitz, are still state by state. They came, uh, they came into effect when rumors started spreading that publishers and movie studios were offering Sam Berkowitz hundreds of thousands of dollars for his story, for the rights mm-hmm. to the Son of Sam story, and Obviously, you would want to move to stop that. It's not making someone a millionaire because they've committed murder doesn't seem like the way a society is supposed to work. And the law was invoked in New York 11 times between seventy-seven and 9, 1977 and 1990. Many of these laws currently have been repealed and replaced by other versions. However, right now, Some states still have no active Son of Sam legislation. This means that in Louisiana, Massachusetts, Missouri, South Carolina, and New Hampshire, it is still legal for anyone to go to a prison and start some sort of financial relationship or or write to someone and say, hey, send me this. I'll sell this letter and then I'll put money in your, your account, your commissary account.
1: All right. Well, you uh, messed up millionaires out there that are really into this stuff. Head on over to one of those states and go for it.
3: <laughs> get, get this, you guys. There's, yeah. a, there's a really crazy article on Vice about this very topic that starts off with just the description of a group of 300 people gathered at an auction house um, in Illinois called the James Quick Auctioneers. They're gathered around two dozen paintings that they are burning. Setting on Fire. And these paintings were uh, the work of um, convicted and executed murderer John Wayne Gacy, who killed about two dozen children, boys, during his career as a serial killer. Um, And before he died, his lawyers actually put 40 of his paintings up for auction and sale at this auctioneer's house. So this was kind of like early – early on in this debate, Mm -hmm. and uh, it turned out that people were interested. People were ready to drop, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to buy this stuff up, and um, the people that did buy them up decided they were going to burn them right there on the premises um, so that the families of Gacy's victims could have some kind of closure there. Wow.
2: Yeah, what do you think about that? I remember hearing a little bit about this, but I I hadn't looked into it too deeply. What what do you think about that? Is that the right move? He
3: actually allowed... It was this um, Joe Roth and Wally Noble, who were uh, local businessmen. um, They invited the families of the victims to come and actually throw the paintings into the fire
1: themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty admirable. Yeah, it's admirable if... It does seem like a waste of money – not a waste of money. It's doing something admirable. It's just – it's crazy. that You'd have to spend that much money to get a hold of it just to burn it.
3: That's true. And th- therein lies the kind of conundrum here because yeah. obviously, you know, they did have to pay the 15 large to get all this stuff. Jeez. True. And where does it go? I- I- I'm not sure what the details are there. It's dust in the wind, my friend. Well, I
2: don't know though. I mean if, if it was done through Gacy's lawyers – Right. Does it bin- – does the money – legally have to benefit a charity, Hmm. right? Does it have to go to a fund for the survivors or the the relatives of the victims? Hopefully. It seems that right now that stuff is functioning on a case-by-case basis because, again, there's no hard, explicit federal law for this. There have been people who have been banned from visiting prisons, we found in our research there's a murderbelia trader named G. William Harder who was uh, banned from visiting any Texas prisons after Texas adopted a Son of Sam law. And it was revealed he had been paying murderers directly for their belongings. So the stuff they don't want you to know in this case often is going to be where the money's going and how they are obtaining these items. You know, this is. Um, this is pretty – I don't know. This is pretty filthy stuff yeah, it's
1: ethically. A, it's a terrible roundabout avenue to get rich for somebody who is insane and willing to do these things.
2: But then also some people might be saying it's not about the money, right? They may be saying we want to keep this in the public eye or we. I just have a personal fascination because maybe I felt – maybe I lived, says someone, in – the California area when this one serial killer is operative and this is an important time in my life. I get that part of it. What I what I'm
1: saying is a a roundabout way to get rich for the killer. That's a thing. For, uh, for though, someone to go like if you're super poor and you go to jail but you can sell all the stuff you murdered all these people with.
3: But the Son of Sam laws like that you said they're different in different states, but mm-hmm.
2: isn't it generally kind of the law of the land? Like Yeah, it's generally the only state that has never had any law like that is New Hampshire. Right. And the ones that – the other ones on that list, they had one, and then it got struck down, uh, but they're supposedly working Mm -hmm. on a new one. So that's the safeguard. I mean, like, you know, in
3: theory, unless you launder it and figure out some roundabout way of getting paid Mm – you can't really – a state can't really benefit from this. And yeah. I think the big part of the reason for this law was so that people couldn't sell the rights to their story yep. to, like, movies. And, and I think you mentioned that at the yeah. top of the show. Um, but people find other ways of getting this stuff, don't they? Because the if, if it's coming directly from incarcerated criminals and they're making this work, they want to find a way for it to benefit them while they're alive. Even if they can't make money directly – people find other ways of, of helping them out in order to get this murderbilia, right, Ben?
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah like payment in kind. Let me bring you some stuff, right? Uh, it's like what you were talking about with people
3: actually being banned from going mm-hmm. into prisons because this is,
2: you know, it's a sketchy territory, right? Yeah, it is, but there are still legitimate reasons that someone would conduct some of this stuff. Like the Vice article that, that you have mentioned has a story about a... East Coast academic, I believe, who's conducting research on school shooters, and he buys almost every school shooter letter that's available because it's part of his research. So that's one argument, but still it feels like those moments of understandable rational action for this are few and far between. Hmm. Not going to say impossible, just few and far between, and right now, even though it's it's sort of a hidden industry right now, you can go should you so choose to these websites, and you can find uh, you can find all sorts of stuff on offer. Uh, be aware that some of it could quite possibly be fraudulent. Yeah. You can't speak to it, and then you have to ask yourself: is it worse if it's fraudulent, or it's wor- is it worse if it's real? So, the uh, harder the guy we mentioned who got banned. Um, he noted that he has a minimum of a thousand active users on his website. Wow. There are probably a lot of people who just read about this, you know, or vicariously experience it. Uh, I will say, I don't know what you guys think, but I will say after researching this episode, I've come to the conclusion that I'm not getting I'm not getting you guys anything like this for for your birthdays.
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thank
2: you, Ben. Yeah, heard, yeah, Really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> Thanks for thinking about us. And
2: likewise, not to be too much of a diva, but please, just no serial killer stuff for me either. All right. And here's the thing: no matter what kind of laws get passed, this is gonna this trade is gonna continue.
1: Yeah, black markets, gray markets. I think there are ways around it, and it will continue to happen.
2: And it's it's impossible to stamp it out because the only way you can stamp this stuff out. The most effective way to do it would be denying incarcerated prisoners any and all access of any sort to the outside world.
1: But even then, you've got sisters, brothers, fathers, other members of families of killers who may need money.
2: Who are free. I see what you're saying. You know, I, I don't know, man. Then what would you do? You would have to entirely violate human rights. Well, here's a question. Um, What about folks that, let's say,
3: I wanted to design a line of serial killer-themed trading cards or a line of uh, really high-detailed serial killer-themed action figures? Mm -hmm. Who do I have to pay for the right to do that? Do I have to pay anyone? Am I allowed to do that if if I'm making it and paying for it myself and selling it direct? Yeah. How does that work?
1: Yeah, who owns the IP of... Serial killers.
3: That's the thing because mm-hmm. it is public domain. I mean this stuff was reported in the public right. and obviously the killers themselves can't benefit from the IP of their image. They
2: are public figures. I think, you know, oddly enough, the action figure thing might might be an easier route because the trading cards, depending on the image you use – you might have to pay someone, somebody owns that unless yeah, yeah, unless it's a mugshot or something. That's right, that's right.
3: But I'm actually I looked this up just now. I just looked yeah. up serial killer action figures. There are a ton of them out there: bobbleheads, action figures, um, plush dolls. There's a Jeffrey Dahmer. It's called the Peekaboo Jeffrey Dahmer Slay Set, Jesus. and it is Jeffrey Dahmer in his prison uh, reds. You know, the full body suit with the ankle, mm-hmm. you know, cuffs and everything on, and it comes with a little bucket of like it's meant to be acid I guess cuz he would dissolve bodies in acid. Oh so god. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty hideous and tasteless, but is it is it is it legal? <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. I think it is probably It is
2: technically legal. And there are some people who go further and say is it art? Which uh is an argument maybe for another day. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It is it is legal. People are doing it. You don't have to pay for the rights to a real person, you would have to go through a bunch of licensing stuff to make – it's actually more difficult to make an action figure of, say, Mike Myers or Jason Voorhees than it is uh, for Jeffrey Dahmer or something. That's because the license
3: holders of those properties have, like, people they pay to look around online constantly Ooh. for people doing, like, derivative kind of – like. there's a lot of fan communities that make T-shirts and prints based on popular – Products and they can very easily get shut down if they're you know making money off of it. But a lot of times the studios and stuff will let that stuff ride. But it's not the case, I don't think. With uh,
2: yeah, that's a real kick in the pants, you know, because these are horrible people and they get action figures. There aren't any action figures of us.
3: We can change that. You know, there's a place at the uh, Decab Mall mm-hmm. here in uh, Atlanta, the North Decab Mall, where you can get a 3D photograph taken of you and your family, and they will print it into an action figure set of you and your of your family.
2: Did That's you do amazing. it?
3: Amazing. No, I haven't done it yet, but I, I, I'm I'm interested. We've yeah. got to do it. We
2: should do it for the for the team. We should do yes. it. We should. Uh, let's see, Paul. Would you be interested in that? Yes. Yeah, oh, we got a, a pretty enthusiastic nod. Wow. From Paul Mission Control Deccant. Wow. I'm Can so glad. Send us some links. Yeah. And and let us know as well. What, what do you think? Where do you fall in this debate? Do you believe that it is unethical and we should do anything possible as a society to prevent this trade? Do you believe that um, the past is the past and that these Things should uh, be allowed to freely float through the world as they will. Should they only be in museums? Should they be destroyed entirely? Should we obliterate uh, the traces of these people? You know, Like the way the Chinese government uh, obliterated traces of people in Tiananmen Square, right? Or the wow. way Stalin erased people from photographs. Well, wow, when you
1: think about it that way, it seems hmm. like maybe we shouldn't. But anyway— What do you think? Yeah,
2: what do you you think? As always, thank you so much for tuning in. You can let us know on Instagram, uh, where we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. Or Twitter or Facebook, where we are
1: Conspiracy Stuff. Definitely put all of your information into Facebook and talk to us there because your data is completely safe. But it is a great way to talk to us. especially are you being
3: sarcastic? No,
1: especially on our Here's Where It Gets Crazy, uh, what, what do we call that, our page, where we can all hang out. We've been doing all kinds of stuff on there lately. Um, And just remember, if you are going to go there, um, be inquisitive. Yeah, be you can be intense. Don't be a dick. Yeah,
3: that's it. (laughs) Okay, Um, because we will destroy you.
1: (laughs) We will wipe all traces of you from the group. Oh gosh. Okay, so we're not about just putting this out there. We are not about censorship. But there is just there's some things that you just don't want to say. There's a line. Uh, And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one 833 stdwytk If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are
2: conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. Live Nation presents Concert Week from now through May 14th. Get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows.
2: That's up to 75 percent off a summer full of your favorite artists like Twenty One Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainor, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more
1: for way
3: less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all
2: summer long for just. $25 each.
1: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to buy now. That's livenation.com slash concertweek to buy now.